Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. If you want to put up the picture, um, we'll begin with. So Lent, as Jane uh, talked about, Lent is often seen as a pilgrimage. There is language of pilgrimage that is used for the Lenten season, these 40 days uh, where we focus specifically on a, uh, a particular journey, the journey of Jesus to the cross. And so we're going to use uh, the passages that are given to us in the lectionary this morning a lot of them revolve around this idea of pilgrimage. Brian Zahn says a pilgrimage is a spiritual journey. It's a journey with a spiritual uh, purpose. And so we're going to think about uh, what it means to and how we take that journey this morning. What characteristic and Brian's already been singing about it, uh, or leading us in singing about it this morning, the characteristics of trust and faith that are a part of leaning into how we walk out this pilgrimage. But this is a picture that hangs in uh, my study wall, uh, study here in church. So Eugene Peterson, a while ago, he wrote something. He's like, I don't know why they call it a pastor's office. What you do in there is not an office. You don't conduct business. You should study. And so I've named it the study because it just sounds fun. I don't have a pipe in there. Don't worry. Uh, Anyway, so I do have a lot of books, though. So um, uh, in, in my study, uh, there hangs this picture. It was given to me uh, by Ruby, uh, my wife, and a friend of mine, uh, Craig, uh, when I left Canada to come down here and pastor at LBIC. And if you can see at the top, there is uh, some writing and some scribbling in the background, and there's a pen that's laying there. Those things are pictures of my journal. Uh, and so the, it says, as you can read, it says, faith is a journey. And this kind of language, pilgrimage, journey, uh, are very helpful for me when I think about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, It's a language, it's a metaphor that is very invitational and descriptive for me of what it feels like uh, for me to follow Jesus with my life. There's another psalm, Psalm 84, uh, 5, that is, Psalm 84 is a psalm that I want one of the scriptures I want to be read and used at my funeral, hopefully later than sooner, Um, but it has this line from verse 5. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. That that, uh, hearts are set on pilgrimage is language that I really identify and resonate with almost as a prayer, God help me to pilgrim well with you uh, through, through this life. Um, this, this idea of journey, and journey language, uh, and we can talk about this a little, maybe talk about it a little bit later. Um, you know, every, everybody's on a journey nowadays, right? Every, uh, every anniversary you see on Facebook, right? So good to do this journey with you, right? Anybody write that? You, you'll never write it anymore. Um, so yeah, the journey language is all together out there, but uh, pilgrimage language, um, 
is a little different because the focus is different. It's not just like we're meandering along together, uh, but there, there, there's a certain intention behind it in, in pilgrimage. Pilgrimage language is all over the Bible. So life is, a, or faith is a journey, like the picture is not necessarily a verse, so to speak, but we see it written all over the pages of scripture and the stories of scripture. I don't know if you ever think about it this way, but Adam and Eve set out on a pilgrimage, although it's east of Eden, it's out of Eden, but God follows them, and so there's pilgrimage language right in the beginning. Abram, who we'll look at in a little bit, sets out from the Ur of the Chaldees, from his land, from his um, from his family, he sets out to a land that God will show him. Israel wanders through the desert. Here's an interesting one. God is also a pilgrim because God wanders with Israel through the desert. Um, Naomi in the, the book of Ruth, Naomi pilgrims with Ruth back to Ruth's hometown, a, a, a land that Naomi does not know. Jesus is a pilgrim. He often describes himself as somebody who doesn't have a place to even lay his head uh, in in the context of Lent, he takes a pilgrimage of 40 days and nights into the desert as he's led by the Spirit. The call of the disciples is, is not believe this and do that, but it's come, follow me, right? It's pilgrim kinds of language. And we see this continually on and on throughout the scriptures. Um, there are a couple ways that we can take uh, this journey or this pilgrimage, make this pilgrimage, and, and I want to set them side by side this morning. The first one, and there's a definition of it in the, in, in the bottom of your bulletin, uh, the first one is what I want to call the secularist way. Um, let me first describe secularism. Uh, Shaler Matthews uh, describes secularism using the phrase God emeritus. Okay, so if you don't know what emeritus is, it's somebody who has had an impact, uh, usually in an institution or an organization, over a certain period of time, and in order to honor them, as they leave and no longer have any power or influence in the organization, they give them the title emeritus. And so secularism very, uh, very simply says, God emeritus. God, you have had some influence in the past. You have been the center of things in the past, but you no longer have influence anymore. We want to honor maybe what you've done in the past, but that's simply not what we are, where we're at anymore. So uh, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict had a uh, uh, Pope emeritus. I can't remember his name offhand. I can picture him, Joseph Ratzinger, right? No? Thank you. Whoever that one person was, familiar with your Catholicism. Um, so uh, you have the Pope Emeritus. My, my current university has the President Emeritus, which personally think is just his way of holding on to the fact that he had been president for 35 years. Anyway, it's not a great term. It, it's a way to honor, but in a sense, it's also a way to say you don't really have the position that you did anymore. It's more of a sense of hanging around. And so that's, uh, that's how Matthew, uh, Shaler Matthews describes secularism as God emeritus. Had influence, no longer does. Uh, secularism has also been described as functional atheism. And this is the quote uh, that's in the bottom of your bulletin from Parker Palmer, who's a teacher and an author. He says that functional atheism is the belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests with us. This is the unconscious, unexamined conviction that if anything decent is going to happen here, we are the ones who have to make it happen. 
a conviction held by, by people who, even held by people who talk a good game about God. And so we can be functional atheists in the church, right? We can believe in God, but we can also believe that if anything is going to happen here, it's going to be up to me, not up to God. Uh, functional atheism or secularism is, is the old language of we are captains of our own ship and masters of, of our own fate. It's up to us to get to our destination. Secularist journeys are self-determined, uh, and so they focus on a particular arrival that is determined by us. We set the destination where we want to go. We also justify whatever means it takes to get there. And so secularism not only determines its own sort of end, but it also says whatever means it takes for me to get there are justified. And so we even see this sometimes in the church where you can have a good end, but the means in which you take to get there is less than good. So sacred journeys, pilgrimages, can be done in secularist sorts of ways. You can embark on a spiritual pilgrimage, so to speak, in a secular way. You can take a sacred journey that you think is towards God, but it's based upon your own self, your own works, your own determination of means. But sacred pilgrimages are different, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we want to look at Romans chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and then we'll flip backwards to uh, what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 4 to Genesis chapter 12 and the story of Abram. So if there's the secularist way, which is self-determined, you determine your end, you determine your means. God emeritus is, is the phrase that is used. Um, God no longer has influence or, or power. Um, if there's that way of doing things, then the contrasting way is that of a path of faith. And so faith is something that we've talked about or sung about a lot this morning. Uh, the secularist pilgrimage is based on the work that we put in to give it meaning. Sacred pilgrimages, though, are based upon faith. Or uh, I, I think a better, um, maybe a better word for faith is trust. A giving yourself to God who invites us to come and to follow and bestows something then upon us along the way. I think that's the most important contrast because between the secularist and the sacred uh, view of pilgrimage. The secularist, whatever is bestowed upon you is earned, and we're going to see this in Romans chapter 4. And uh, friends, we can earn very, very little. We can become very, very tired in trying to earn our meaning and our sense of worth and our identity. Um, but in a sacred journey in faith, faith is leaning into God and receiving something that God bestows upon us. It's not determined by us. It's not determined upon our merit. It's not determined upon our imagination because we can't even imagine it. But it's something that is bestowed on us by, by God. So let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Uh, some context here in the verses that we're reading. Paul is trying to help uh, Jewish Christians make room for Roman or Gentile uh, Christians. And he's trying to help them to do that by uh, uh, unpacking how they understand the law. The law is, uh, in, in its simplest form, is the Ten Commandments um, that are given to us. 
uh, in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy again. It's built upon um, through oral tradition throughout the Old Testament to contain, I think, 600 and some laws afterwards. Um, but the law is what the Jewish people considered themselves to be given by God, was given by God, but it, it's what made them special. It's what set them apart. And it did set them apart, but uh, Paul's arguing here that it's not an in an exclusivist way to exclude others, but the law, the intention of the law is to do something different. So Romans chapter four, uh, verses one through four, I'll just give some commentary along the way. What then shall we say that Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? And, and the matter here is the relationship between law and faith, uh, with certain Jews feeling like Gentiles were excluded because they weren't the ones given the law. So the difference between law and faith. Verse two, if in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, pause here for a minute. This is already written down in your bulletins for you, but uh, it's interesting to think about the term righteousness and what righteousness means here. Uh, it's used several times in the passage, and, and kind of the working definition from the Greek word righteousness that we'll use this morning is the state of being as we ought to be. The state of being as we ought to be. Verse 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So if you work, you need to get paid. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And so what Paul is doing here is drawing a contrast between their understanding, uh, uh, drawing a contrast in their understanding of righteousness. Does righteousness come about by works? So if I do this for God, then God has to do this for me. Uh, this, this is a very Near Eastern kind of view of the gods in and of itself. And so if you do this for Baal, to appease Baal, then, God is go uh, then Baal is going to do this. It's a very interactive, um, that's, that's how uh, God and man interact in that sense. So it's an obligation of the gods to respond to what they have done. Or, as Paul's suggesting, is it credited by faith? Or is it done by trusting God, that it is given by God? Is righteousness something that is given by God rather than earned? What Paul is trying to clarify here is that righteousness, the state of being as we ought to be, is not something that can be earned. Righteousness, the state of being as we ought to be, is not something that can be earned. Earned righteousness is self-righteousness. Now, when we think of self-righteousness, we might think of somebody who's really prideful, who holds it over your head, those kinds of things. That, that is a way to think of self-righteousness, but that's not necessarily the way that I want to talk about it this morning. <clears throat> self-righteousness is a sense of being in the state <clears throat> of, of who you ought to be depends on you. So self-righteousness is not necessarily a prideful sense in this way. It is, but it's not in this puffed-up, big-headed sense. But it's saying that self-righteousness, being in the state of who you ought to be, depends on you, on yourself. 
And if you can see the secularist view that depends upon itself to determine its ends and its means kind of goes hand in hand with this. The Jews Paul is talking to are arguing that righteousness, the, the state of being as you ought to be, comes through obedience to the law and that only the Jewish people can be righteous because they're the only ones that have the law. But Paul's suggesting something different. He's suggesting a different function of the law, that the law was not intended to make you righteous, but the law instead it kind of flips it on its head. And what the law does is help you understand that you cannot be righteous by your works. You cannot become in the state of who you ought to be by your own works. See, Jesus says something different to the Pharisee or something similar to the Pharisees, right, as he's interacting with the Pharisees who externally would say they have fulfilled the law perfectly. There is an external way that you can fulfill the law perfectly, but Jesus says to them, you're missing something on the inside. You might be externally doing all the right things, but internally your hearts are far from me. So instead of righteousness being at the state of being as we ought to be, a sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness coming from our own works, coming from our own efforts, that's one way to approach it. That's the works kind of centered view. That's also the secularist sense in our day and our age. There is an alternative where the state of being as we ought to be comes from beyond us to us as the gift of God who justifies, who makes right all the ungodly. Any ungodly in the house? Oh, come on now. Like all of us are. God justifies the ungodly. And faith is leaning into this God who makes us as we ought to be, even in the midst of our ungodliness. Now, why does God do this? Why would God do this? This says something not about who we are. It says something about the nature of who God is. God desires to bestow on, on all of humanity the sense of being as they ought to be in the midst of their ungodliness. Paul talks about it as being credited to them in the midst of their debt, in the midst of their sin. It's not something that they earn. Now, this is not to say that works don't matter. What you do doesn't matter. That's not saying that what we do does not matter. Works are important, but works are important for a different reason. It's not to earn righteousness, not to earn being as we ought to be, but it is to reflect righteousness. Okay? There is a big difference there. Rather than works and what we do being done to earn, a sense of wholeness and completeness that is often self-defined. Instead, what works do is what has been done to us by God is reflected then in the works that we do. It's not an earning, but it is a reflection. It is a witness that we bear to what God has done in us. This is, this is kingdom of God language, right? We want to reflect the kingdom of God to the world. Kingdom of God being the way as things ought to be. And through our works, we reflect that. 
Paul repeats throughout this section that it's by faith that Abraham, or in a minute we'll look, uh, his name was Abram at the time, it's by faith that Abram walked. And faith here simply means a trust. A trust by giving himself fully to God. His, his, his righteousness, Abraham's righteousness, was not done because he did everything perfectly. His pilgrimage was not determined righteousness. His, his journey with God was not determined righteousness by the way that he walked his journey perfectly because he didn't. Genesis chapter 12 starts the story of Abram, and it's not before Genesis 13, then 14, then 15, that takes a break, that you find out that this guy is a flawed dude. Just like every other character in the Bible is flawed. And so the pilgrimage isn't determined righteous because he did everything right. Your pilgrimage is not determined righteous because you do everything right. In fact, failures are not the mark of a person's faithfulness. Let me say that again. Your failures, my failures, Abram's failures, any character in the Bible's failures, their failures are not the marks of faithfulness. David considered faithful in the midst of a lot of unfaithfulness, right? Abram, in, in this passage of scripture, described as faithful in the midst of a lot of unfaithfulness. And so faithfulness has to be something bigger and greater than what you do and how you perform. Faithfulness is the trust in God who is going to treat you mercifully and shape you into who you ought to be along the way, even as you are faithless, even as you do things that are faithless. And so our failures aren't the mark of our faithfulness. Faith continuing to trust God who justifies you and I who are the ungodly is what speaks righteousness and works righteousness into it, in, into us. God credits it to us, right? And so if I'm going to credit Jane, you know, I'm going to write her a check for a million dollars. Let's take six zeros off of that one. I'm going to write Jane a check. She, I, I'm going to give it to her on loan. It's credit, right? God is crediting. He's giving it to us ahead of time. Before we even paid it back, because we can't pay it back, but God's giving it to us ahead of time in the midst of and in spite of our debts. This is the nature of who God is. God gives to us what we don't deserve. We're the ungodly. God gives to us and wants to work into us the state of being who we're supposed to be before we can do it ourselves. Love it. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12 now and take this language of faith into this um, imagery and understanding of pilgrimage. Faith, leaning into who God is and what God does on our behalf with, with, with it not being based at all upon our works. Faith is how we then walk the journey of pilgrimage. Trusting in God, not trusting in ourselves. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, listen to the, the, the repetition here, so it's going to go from big down to really personal. Go from your country, big picture, 
your people, a little smaller picture, your father's household, very, very small picture, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Now, let's shift a little bit and just think about the nature of pilgrimage, the nature of pilgrimage. There are two things I want to draw out from this passage of scripture in in terms of the nature of pilgrimage. The first is this, that all all, all pilgrimages are journeys of what initially feels like loss. All pilgrimages are journeys of what initially feels like loss. I broke down those three things, big picture, middle picture, small picture, because they are, they're, they're three costs to the person of Abram. So go from your country. You can think of this as go from your society. Go from the structures that you understand to be how society functions. Leave the place, in other words, where you understand how everything works. That's the first leaving. All pilgrimages are journeys of what initially feels like loss. You initially leave the place where you understand how everything works. Then it goes, then leave your people. Your people, especially in that time in Near Eastern cultures uh, where they're based upon clans and extended clans and things, um, your people is your safety. Your people is what makes you secure from the other peoples that are around you. And so, Abram, leave what you've understood, but now also leave your safety. And then go from your father's household. Your father's household. Leave your family name. Leave your identity. And then go somewhere that I'll show you. Leave the way that you understand how everything works. Leave your safety. Leave your security. Leave your identity behind and go to the land that I will show you. Pilgrimages, at least Christian pilgrimages, because we, especially within the context of Lent, are pilgrimages of what initially feel like loss because we are following a Savior whose whose pilgrimage was to a cross. There are things that must die, and part of the the role of pilgrimages in our lives is to shed us of those things that must die and that we must lose in order to gain. And so in a way, Abram is moving into death. He's moving into non-existence. His understanding of security and how the world works, his identity as he knows it is being left behind. Now, there's a great tension within spiritual pilgrimage, I think, because we're drawn by God. We, we feel this pull by God, somehow that we, we, we need to go, we need to trust, we want to trust. But at the same time, then, we also find that there's something that we have to leave behind. But we're pulled ahead, but there's something we've got to leave behind, and the tension goes back and forth and back and forth. But what is most compelling about the spiritual pilgrimages is that even when there's questions about, ah, oh, there's going to be such loss, there is such compulsion being compelled forward that it's, we, we question, 
I, I think it might be worth it. Or we're questioning, is it worth it? I think it's worth it. Is it worth it? I think it's worth it. And we go back and forth. But hopefully, eventually, we step forward, maybe even if into a fog. Sacred pilgrimages involve surrender to God, death to ourselves, and a righteousness, a way of being as we ought to be that are given to us by God. Now, I think uh, the invitation to pilgrimage, to this kind of pilgrimage, one, um, it might feel like over the course of our lives there are several pilgrimages that we take. Um, so uh, maybe you can think about it in, in, in a big sense. We're on pilgrimage the rest of our lives, I think is, is what Hebrews 11 and 12 talks about. Uh, they continue to search for a place that they never find kind of language. And so there is a sense where we're all pilgrims, aliens and strangers in the language of Hebrews uh, in, in this world. But then there are times where pilgrimages are a little more acute in our lives, where we feel invited to move beyond where we've been. Uh, we feel God is inviting us into something. We don't know where that land is going to be, where God exactly is going to take us, but we know we can't stay where we were. And so the option and the choice then is to lean in and to trust that God is calling us somewhere without determining what that is going to look like. Not everybody takes a pilgrimage because it's a lot easier to stay home. It's a lot easier to maintain the status quo. It's a lot easier to fight to keep things like just as they've always been, right? This leads to my second thought on pilgrimage, and this is important. Blessing, which is all over this uh, language that God gives Abram, blessing, or what we receive along the way as we walk the pilgrim way, blessing cannot be imagined. Okay, the secularist says, I imagine what blessing lies ahead of me. The one that's based on work says, this is the end that I'm going to earn. Faith says, I have no idea what's out there, but I'm going to trust God who is going to bless me, but I can't determine, nor can I imagine what that's going to look like. And here's why. You and I do not have the imagination to imagine the goodness of the good that God will bring to us. We don't have the imagination to imagine the goodness of the good that God desires to bring us. Anytime we imagine that end or what we think it should be, I guarantee you it's going to be off to the left or to the right, or to the up or to the down. Either way, you're going to miss it, because we do not have that imagination. Now, one of the interesting things about the Abram passage and the calling of Abram, that we get some specific age markers as we go along through the life of Abram and Sarah, but in the beginning, we don't know how old Abram is when God calls him out of the Ur of the Chaldees. But in some of the reading this week, a Jewish tradition has um, uh, an idea or a suggestion, and this is where some of the Hebrew scriptures are led to be conversational and imaginative, and I think it's fun and it's helpful. And so some of the Jewish thinkers say that he was 14 when he was called. Now, I wish I had a 14-year-old stand up here with a 14-year-old male to hear these words. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. Let's try this again. I will make you a great influencer, and I will cause many followers to follow you, right? I will bless those who bless you and who like you, and whoever gives you a thumbs down or trolls you, I will curse. So Abraham went with the Lord, right? I don't know if Abraham was 14, but it does give us a sense of um, how to think about blessing. Um, because to a 14-year-old, if, 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 if Abram was 14, um, if, sorry, lost my, lost my notes here. Um, if he was 14, like those things, you can just kind of imagine the synapses firing and the visions of how he's going to become great, right? How he's going to become great, how all nations are going to bow to him, how he's going to multiply his family over and over and over again. What he doesn't know as he sets off on this pilgrimage, and so he does have a cost, right? He leaves security. He leaves the way that he knows things are. He leaves his identity, but he has this promise. But he's hearing this, and he's thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be something that is good. Remember, though, that when God blesses us, we don't have the imagination to imagine the goodness of the good that God will bring us. Abram had no idea that the very promise he was given, it doesn't matter how old he was, but especially if he was 14, that the very promise he was given was based upon his very helplessness to fulfill that promise. And so all this promise of God that God gives Abram is not based on anything that Abram can do. He is physically incapable to make himself great. In, in terms of the multiplication sense, as the promise goes on, you will out, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. The very promise of God lies in the helplessness of Abram. One of the things that we find as we pilgrim, as we take a pilgrim edge, is that we can try, as we see later on in Abram's story, to make God's promises happen on our own. But this never goes well. The blessing of Abram is like the righteousness that Paul talks about. Both come from God, not because of you, not because of me, the ungodly, but because of God. And the way that we walk the pilgrimage of faith is by leaning in and trusting God to do what only God can do in us. And so the passages that are given to us this morning are an invitation to faith and to trust in God to make us who we ought to be as we walk this pilgrim way. As we go to the land that God will show us, we don't exactly know where that is. I can't tell you where I'm going to be or in five years, ten years, even tomorrow, right? 
but I can lean into the fog, trusting that God is going to meet me there, and God is going to do something in me through whatever is happening around me. I can lean in, and I can trust, and I can trust God to do that. If you've ever participated in a trust fall, right, you kind of lean, it's backwards, but you can, we'll just say leaning forwards, right? You can lean into, faith is leaning into and trusting that God is going to catch you, that God is going to be present there. The secularist or the works righteousness view of faith is that it's going to be based upon yourself. And if I would act that out, I would have a broken nose by the end of our time because we fall flat on our face. But the way of faith is trusting and leaning in to what God is going to do in our ungodly lives in order to make us who we were meant to be. And that is defined by God, not us. So this morning is an invitation to faith, to trust, to leaning in, to trusting in God, to trusting in the God who is revealed to us in Jesus, to trusting God with your life and all the things that are happening in your life, the things you understand, the things you don't understand. It's leaning into the fog, trusting that God is in the mist with you. It's trusting God with your path and your pilgrimage. Friends, there, there are so many times, I think, in my life and lives, I was just talking to some, a friend of mine this week, like, where there are good directions, we think, oh, God wants us to do this, and it's a good thing. But sometimes God isn't asking you even to do the good thing. It's not that God's asking you to do the bad things. But the good things that you imagine to determine your own pilgrimage sometimes are not what God is asking of you. Sometimes God is asking you simply to sit and to wait, to sit and to trust, to sit and to let your own ego and your own sense of self-determination die. It's not all the good that we can come up with to ever do so we feel good about ourselves. It's about what God wants to bestow on us, to be who we ought to be as we have faith and trust and follow. Perhaps that is the most poignant imagery that we can have this morning, is simply coming back to the words of Jesus, who say to each of his disciples, come and follow. Friends, Jesus is with you. Jesus is leading you. Follow him. Follow him. Let's pray together. I just want to invite you into those two um, images of pilgrimage and service if you want to come forward at this time too to prepare for communion. But I invite you to sit, uh, if you feel you're at a point in pilgrimage where there's loss, where it feels like following Jesus is going to cost you something. 
that, that, that's part of what it means to come and follow. And so we bring our losses of the way that we understand how things should work. Or we bring the losses of our security or we bring the losses of our identity. We bring those to Jesus. Because those very things will be given back to us just in different ways. Our identity will be given back to us by Jesus. Our security will be given back to us by Jesus. Our understanding of how the world works will be given back to us by Jesus. And then for those of you who feel like you are on a pilgrimage and you just don't know where this thing is leading to, or you think you have in mind where it's leading to, you've determined the destination and what it should look like. Know that the blessing that you can imagine is nowhere near the goodness of the good that God has planned for your life. You can't even imagine it. We cannot imagine how high and deep and wide and long is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.